The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. We love spunk edition. It's Wednesday, February 1st, 2017. On today's show, the feature film Elle stars the great French actress Isabelle Huppert as a woman coming to grips with the fact of her brutal sexual assault that took place in her own home. The movie is directed by Paul Verhoeven. And then This Is Us is a huge, huge hit on NBC. This is almost like the empire of network TV striking back with a big theme, warm-hearted, mass audience, crowd-pleasing show. It seems to have done all those things, warmed hearts on a mass basis. We discussed with Slate's own Laura Bennett. And finally, Mary Tyler Moore, I would say along with Lucille Ball, it's fair to say she was the greatest television comedian of all time and a woman who spearheaded a comedy and a feminist revolution. She has died and we will discuss her remarkable legacy. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Julia, you realize you occupy that seat thanks only to Mary Tyler Moore's Mary Richards. Uh, absolutely. All of the conference rooms at Slate are named after fictional journalists, and the one that I use most frequently is named Richards in honor of Mary, Tyler Moore's Mary Richards. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. That's so fantastic. Um, and of course, Dana Stevens, who is, um, she occupies her seat as Slate's film critic solely on her own merits. <laughs> <laughs> There didn't need to be any tossed berets for me to sit in my place. No, on the no, contrary, I owe everything to Mary. Uh, we all do. Um, all right, before we dig in, um, Julia, presumably some business, yeah? Uh, we do. In fact, we have four pieces of business today. Number one, in our Slate Plus segment, we will be talking about the controversial ending of Elle. If you have seen Elle or if you have read about Elle, you know that its ending is controversial. So we will get into spoilers in, in plus. We'll live up to the French pronunciation of <laughs> yeah, plus. It's slowly becoming a 100% French segment. Uh, and we will dig into the end of the film and, and uh, what it means about the film's ideas and themes and merits. Um, if you are a member of Slate Plus, you will hear that after the show. If you are not yet a member, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus to get ad-free versions of this show and all our shows, bonus segments of this show and many of our shows, uh, and to support Slate and the journalism that we do. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Uh, number two, we are coming to the great city of Washington, D.C. for the first time ever to do a live show. I mean, we're not coming there for the first time ever. We are doing a live show there for the first time ever. I believe we've all been to our nation's capital. I lived there for a while. We will be doing that on April 19th. The link to buy tickets is not yet available, but circle the date in red on your calendars and uh, hold all calls. We will be very excited to see you there in our nation's capital. Number three, I am hosting an event in Brooklyn next week on the evening of February 9th, which I believe is a Thursday at Powerhouse Books in Dumbo. I will be interviewing Dr. Michael Bennett and his daughter, Sarah Bennett, about their new book, Fuck Love, which is the follow-up to their wildly successful self-help book, Fuck Feelings, uh, <laughs> which take a, as you can tell from the titles, very no-nonsense and practical approach to advice. Their shtick is basically applying uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and the notion that the, the way to a happier life is not actually understanding the traumas that your parents put you through or anyone else in your life, but just looking at the world and very realistically assessing the likelihood that anything around you is going to change and becoming okay with that and how to do that. It's really great, practical, smart advice delivered very amusingly. Uh, and I think we're going to do some some fun uh, advice events at this event at Powerhouse Books in Brooklyn on February 9th. So if you're in Brooklyn, come out. That's a great, um, great bookshop in Dumbo, and they are very 
fun, smart, and lively people. Uh, and finally, uh, you may have heard the bestseller on Amazon at the moment is 1984 by Steve's personal champion and hero, George Orwell. I've never read it. Steve, have you read it? <laughs> it's funny you should ask that, Julia. I have never read 1984. And Dana, you've read it, right? I just don't understand how you graduated high school. Yes, I think I read it for high school. No one understands how I graduated high school, Dana. (laughs) I was assigned to me at least twice, and I blew it off twice. But then later, I should explain, very quickly later in life, Orwell became a hero because of his nonfiction. Um, And so I read all of that non-homework, non-assigned Orwell. In fact, every word of his nonfiction I've tried to read, published, you know, nonfiction. But you've held out a 1984 until 2017. So we will be reading Orwell over the next few weeks and we will discuss it uh, in a couple weeks on the show. If you have either read 1984 or we're planning to read it again or would like the opportunity to pick it up, we're going to do a little Orwell book club uh, and we will be discussing that book on the show. All right. That's enough business for one day. Steve, let's commence. Thanks, Julia. Okay. L. The feature film L. Um, it stars Isabelle Huppert, the miraculous French actress, as Michelle Leblanc, a personally and professionally powerful and successful career woman. She's divorced. She's brutally raped in her own upper bourgeois Parisian home. What follows is a careful, or one might say, intriguing study in both coping and denial in gender politics, and finally, the nature of sexual violence and consent. It's directed by Paul Verhoeven. I really want to get into that aspect of it with Dana. Paul, Paul Verhoeven's, of course, known for um, 80 schlock noir films like Basic Instinct and Robocop. Prior to that, he did make the European art, sort of arty films. This seems to be a kind of bizarre melange of both. We'll get into all of that. Plus, was who was nominated for Best Actress, deservingly is, is, I think, is truly miraculous in the film. Why don't we listen to a clip? It's French. Do we want to listen to a clip? Oh, do we? All right. Well, we would listen to a clip normally under these circumstances, Dana Stevens, but the movie is in French and only you are fluent in French. Um, but, in um, all the world. Yes. But let me start with you. This film is... Um, uh, it could be said to begin and end with the remarkable performance of Isabelle Hubert, but it doesn't. So let's first acknowledge that if for nothing else, one should see it for her extraordinary performance. The rest of the movie is quite complicated. It's, it's not possible to have uncomplicated feelings about this movie, I would assert. Um, I'm very curious to know what your complicated feelings are. Yeah, I think I'm still working mine through in spite of having seen it twice and written on it and talked about it in the movie club. I still feel like I haven't quite gotten what Elle was setting out to do. And so I can't say whether it accomplished what it was setting out to do. I mean, I think something that you just said, Steve, is very important. It's come up in a lot of the criticism of the film, both on the positive and negative side, which is that it's a an actor as auteur kind of film. You know, it's a movie mm. that you can't imagine without this actress in the role. And I think she brings degrees of nuance to the script that were not in the script itself. Um, How to categorize my reaction? For one thing, upon first seeing this movie, I immediately knew I would have to see it again before writing on it because I was completely unsure of its tone vis-a-vis the main character and these events you talk about and sexual violence and gender. I mean, it was throwing so many provocative ideas out about all these things that I really walked out having no idea what it was trying to say and knowing that I would have to see it again in order to write on it while at the same time really not wanting to see it again because it's a very graphic, brutal, and hard-to-sit-through movie in some ways. Although with lots of laughs as well, those kind of Paul Mm -hmm. Verhoeven laughs where you're laughing at the kind of nihilistic 
bizarre intensity of it all. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the two earlier Paul Verhoeven films that would come to mind for me in thinking about Elle, you didn't mention, and that would be Showgirls and Starship Troopers, both of which are <laughs> yes. movies that I love and that that take apart a genre in a kind of sick-minded and very smart way. Starship Troopers, I think, is his masterpiece and really an important movie that, that Paul Verhoeven made. But to see him and Isabelle Huppert coming together in this way, and like you say, marrying the kind of French art film and the, you know, the characters in this film live in this sort of Frenchy intellectual upper bourgeois world that's familiar from a lot of kind of classic French comedies. He brings that together with something like, I don't know, a ho- not horror, but a sort of rape mm-hmm. suspense thriller or rape revenge yeah. fantasy. And all of those things coexist in this big muddle that's hard to talk about without spoiling. But I would say on the whole that I think this movie fails. I think it fails mainly in the oh, last 20 to 30 minutes, which we won't be able to get into until our, our plus section on the spoiler. But in spite of the fact that it fails, I think if you're interested in any of the topics that we're talking about, if you're interested in gender violence on film, or if you just want to see Isabelle Huppert just tear up a really difficult character to play, it's still worth seeing. Mm-hmm. With I, a trigger I, I, warning, I, a trigger warning, actually, which yes. we have not given many of on this podcast. But yeah, there's there's some hard to watch stuff in this movie. And it starts from frame one. Frame one. Yes. No, I totally agree with that. Um, Julia, dying to know what you thought of this movie. I don't know what I thought of this movie. I just watched it last night and I experienced it as a suspense thriller and then afterwards went and read a bunch of reviews that called it a black comedy and I was like, well, fuck, I just experienced that as a suspense thriller, not a black comedy. But didn't you laugh at times? I totally laughed and I also experienced it, this is going to sound odd perhaps, but um, the the other genre it reminded me of is Nancy Myers movies, like sort of the mm. domestic comedies of Nancy Myers, the, you know, who does all those kind of Diane right. Keaton movies, the with House like Envy movies, middle aged women who have more sex drive than other movies might impute to them, and who like just gad about in beautiful houses, dallying with various handsome men. Like there was a lot, a bit of a lifestyle porn uh, mm-hmm. quotient to this movie, which you know always happens when you watch movies set in glamorous other cultures to a degree, but I don't think it was just the American viewing of the movie. Like, I think it's intentional. Mm-hmm. She lives in this sumptuous home. She has, like, an array of fascinating sconces in her living room. <laughs> she th- she throws, like, a terrible Christmas dinner with, like, you know, um, very elegant uh, little cups for the the wine. And Well, and that dinner scene is funny as hell. And there I yeah. would say that the very bourgeois lifestyle you're pointing to, rather than in Nancy Myers where you just kick back and enjoy it, that that atmosphere is very, you know, oppressive and dangerous. Oh, yes. everybody's mean to each other. I mean, it's blacker than in Nancy Myers in spirit, but you know, there's there's sort of this sense of like what a what a kick-ass woman, what a great life she has. She's such a bitch. She's so mean to everybody. She's she's thoughtlessly cruel all over the place to all kinds of people in her life. Um, and yet you're kind of rooting for her, so that's mm, confusing as so, well. Yeah. Um, I agree with you, Dana, that at the end of the film, she both make some conscious decisions in the final chunk of the film that you might not agree with as a viewer and also a crucial decision she does not make. And both of those things are weird. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But but I find myself slightly stymied. I mean, I, to me, the most radical thing about the movie is she is a rape victim from the first scene of the movie and she does not behave in the ways that you might expect a rape victim to act on film or in life. And she rejects the role of victim in a very aggressive way. Uh, And I can't tell whether the movie is presenting that as a kind of radical problematization of victimhood. Like, perhaps everyone should 
should uh, reject victimhood in the way that Isabella Huppert does or whether it's presenting her as just an incredibly damaged woman and that's why she responds yeah. in such a strange way to the assault. Right. And without spoiling too much, we can say that there's a little bit of flashback material in her childhood that that shows why she might have become a traumatized person who handles rape in such a strange way. Yeah. Right. So what I would say about this movie is, first of all, I I, um, finished it and wanted to see it again immediately um, without really liking or not liking it. It seemed to almost go beyond that. Um, I did feel strongly that the first hour of the movie is perfect or or nearly perfect. And not only for Hubert. Hubert is the reason to see the movie no matter what. Um, But there were other reasons, too, that I thought were handled with astonishing deafness by Verhoeven in the first hour and the scriptwriter. Um, the first is that, in addition, Julia, exactly right, to her being a, a kind of um, a, a woman so powerful in both sort of personality um, and social position uh, that her reaction to the rape is completely unexpected. Um, that was remarkable. But the fact that they made her a video game producer, uh, that, that, that the nature of her, of her success, she's not in couture or, or you know, she's not some you know, high-end restaurateur or something. She makes violent video game content. Um, I thought that was cunning uh, a, a turn, a, a very unexpected and cunning turn. She's she's not only comfortable with the degree of uh, sexual, highly sexualized violence, she makes her fortune off of it. Um, and she does it by, um, by b- being very hands-on in every level of her business. She runs it both as a business and as a creative presence. Those relationships I thought were highly specific and completely believable. Um, I agree also with Dana that the, that the, that the problems the film runs into are ones of such almost kind of 80s excess. I mean, they did really remind me. Suddenly, it didn't seem to me very much like a Verhoeven film at first and then seemed way too much like a Verhoeven film uh, towards the end. And it started to remind me of his use of schlock in movies like Showgirls and, and Robocop in ways that flouted what was so perfect about the first part, which was this impossible balance between the French comedy of manners. The dinner party scene to me is just a just a perfect execution of a very familiar trope from French movies, opera bourgeois, French comedies of manners, you know, a bunch of people from different backgrounds getting together and being, you know, super intellectualized, but repressing what's really going on. Very awkward and very hostile with one another. It's just pulled off absolutely exquisitely. He managed to balance the French comedy of manners with the sort of slightly schlocky overdone thriller um, and then lost the balance sort of tragically. But I didn't ultimately care. I really want to see it again. And um, I felt kind of deeply challenged by it. But Dana, what I would say is that without spoiling anything, one feature of the movie, as you point to, is her past. Her As a child, some extraordinarily traumatic thing um, happened to her, not only happened to her, made her, made her famous, made her infamous in French life. That struck me as overdone from the beginning. And it, in a weird way, um, kind of just unnecessary. Completely. I agree. I think that whole subplot, and I won't get into what it was, but involving her childhood and her childhood trauma was superfluous and could have been cut out of the film and was a moment that it it just seemed to be slipping into grand guignol, as you say, shock for the sake of it. Right. The question of like, what, what does a woman feel, which are the places where the movie is most interesting? What does a woman feel after she's been raped? What does a woman feel about being a daughter? What does a woman feel about being a mother, both of which are also things about which uh, the, the character articulates um, non-mainstream views. Yeah, she's not just a woman, right? It's almost like, what does this extremely mm-hmm. idiosyncratic character 
idiosyncratic and rejecting very specific types of womanhood. She's an incredibly aggressive, confrontational boss. She um, is neither a great mom nor a great daughter. Um, but her attitude toward her son is one of the most hilarious things oh, about totally. the movie. Her son is sort of this overgrown lug who's very infantile and can't keep a job and really just is, is bumbling through life. And the way that she she continuously cuts him down is one of the movie's more amusing aspects. Yeah. Um, so as just sort of a woman who's rejecting classic responses in all kinds of ways, that's fascinating. And And part of what you wonder is, OK, so what's being articulated here? Is this... Um, an embrace of this woman's iconoclasm? Are we to understand her as damaged or strange? Is this just French culture's version of of a Nancy Myers movie? Is like BDSM fantasy and like and c'est la vie? <laughs> but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but with the with this gnarled backstory, you sort of get into multiple levels of victimhood that are being rejected that make you have to go down philosophical wormholes that don't actually strike me as as interesting as the questions raised by her performance itself. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, be- I believe here, unless I'm wrong, um, correct me if I'm wrong, we're at that perfect point in the conversation to say we were deeply intrigued by it. Uper is transporting. It's really an, it's really an extraordinary performance. I'm rooting hard now for him to, her to win the Academy Award. But to talk about this movie further is to really spoil it and spoil it in ways that I think um, would, would harm the viewing experience of our listeners who haven't seen it. So why don't we cut off here um, and um, uh, Slate Plus listeners can tune in and hear us uh, fully spoil the film and delve into that other aspect of it. But I would say, going around the table, I would say, completely almost totally unreserved uh thumbs up not me i would say skip really yeah i mean i'm excited to have the rest of this conversation with you guys but i actually feel like the end of the movie is such a um moral failure that it makes the question the potentially interesting questions raised not interesting at all oh i can't wait for our plus conversation now yeah i think i would say i'm going to recommend with extreme reservations i think if the content (laughs) sounds off-putting to you and you just don't want to see you know a lot of scary violence against women don't see it um if you expect this in any way to be a sort of uplifting revenge you know i will i will get revenge on my rapist kind of narrative don't see it because you'll be disappointed mm-hmm. um, yeah. but if you're very curious about you know a bravura acting performance that seems pretty likely to be a contender for the oscar it might be worth it for that alone and if you're just mm-hmm. a completist of verhoven as i am i'm just curious to see what he does next because he's somebody who's always flip-flopped all over the map from country to country and genre to genre Okay. Well, I don't disagree with either one of those assessments, but I, I just trend heavily in the direction of um, uh, if you get beyond the trigger aspect of it, do see it, uh, if nothing else, for Isabelle Huppert. Okay. The movie is L, stars Huppert, uh, directed by Paul Verhoeven. Um, there are going to be a range of very intense opinions about this movie. Please come express them at facebook.com slash culturefest. Would love to um, pursue the dialogue further there. Okay. This is us as an ensemble dramedy about people who share the same birthday. Oh my. Um, I will say right up front that the uh, premise of the show is a mild spoiler in the pilot. If you really don't want to know what that is, skip ahead. But I think most people familiar with the show, even from the reviews, will know what I'm about to say. And that is that the people who share the same birthday principally are two twins, one of whom is a um, perennially obese sister. The other is her super cut and uh, star of a highly successful sitcom brother. And the third, spoiler alert, is their adopted brother who was abandoned the same day that they were born. They were all born the same day. And he was adopted by the twins' parents and they were raised as triplets. And here's a second twist. 
They Are White, He Is Black. The show is created by Dan Fogelman, who's known as the scriptwriter behind Tangled and uh, creative genius behind Crazy Stupid Love. Um, why don't we listen to a clip? Stop all that banging. I heard you the first time banging on the door. Who the hell is that? My knocking? name is Randall Pearson. I'm your biological son. 36 years ago, you left me at the front door. But now, hold on. Just let me say this. 36 years ago, you left me at the front door of a fire station. Now, don't worry. I'm not here because I want anything from you. I was raised by two incredible parents. I have a lights-out family of my own. And that car you see parked out in front of your house cost $143,000, and I bought it for cash. I bought it for cash because I felt like it and because I can do stuff like that. Yeah. You see, I turned out pretty all right, which might surprise a lot of folks considering the fact that 36 years ago, my life started with you leaving me on a fire station doorstep with nothing more than a ratty blanket and a crap-filled diaper. I came here today so I could look you in the eye, say that to you, and then get back in my fancy-ass car and finally prove to myself and to you and to my family who loves me that I didn't need a thing from you, even after I knew who you were. You want to come in? Okay. All right. Well, to discuss the show, we're joined by Slate's culture editor, Laura Bennett. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm psyched to have you here, but I'm going to play a little um, uh, a little bit of a funny on you, which is that I'm going to throw at you the words of Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, it, not quoting them precisely, but the general tone of her review is that this show is sick making. Why do you like it? Well, I've told Willow this. I think that review is the single wrongest piece of criticism she's written in her esteemed career. But also among perhaps the funniest. <laughs> it's very funny. But just, woof. It, I, I loved it when I read it and I hadn't watched the show and I trembled with rage rereading it a few days ago after I'd become a full This Is Us bandwagoner. I just need to point out that the first paragraph of her of Willa's review of This Is, is Us contains the phrase, a gangrenous nub. <laughs> <laughs> Which gives you some sense of the tone. I believe the headline was the rotten cheese of This Is Us, <laughs> which I wrote at the time. I had no idea. All right. Well, Laura, this is about your opinion, not Willa's. I want you to go ahead and defend the gangrenous nub. (laughs) I would be a pleasure. So I, uh, you know, I've seen every episode of This Is Us. I've watched them avidly. I look forward to coming home at night and watching this show. I think what what This Is Us has done so effectively is in sort of counterintuitively, it's staked out some genuinely new real estate in the network TV landscape. So network TV is full of, you know, procedurals and fixers and superheroes, these kind of broad stroke operatic shows. And the more small bore kind of fine toothed domestic portraiture has mostly been relegated to or kind of co-opted by uh, cable, by sort of prestige TV at this point. Um, It's and so there's actually kind of nothing like it on network TV. And it has become this kind of warm hearted counter-programming to everything else that's going on uh, in the world right now. And I think what makes it so good is that it basically has, it hits all the emotional beats of a schmaltzy network drama. It's, you know, melodramatic, it's it's soapy, but it kind of has the texture of a, of a prestige drama in some ways. It really rewards re-watching. So if you pay close attention to it, okay, I don't want to give away 
any of the major plot twists here, but there are so many of them that I'm going to have to give some of them away. Um, There is this dual timeline trick going on that we learn at the end of the pilot, basically that we think we've been watching the parallel stories of all these people, but it turns out that one of the the sort of vignettes we're following are the parents of the three other people who were following in the in the pilot. And uh, if you look closely, it turns out that there are little hints that the timelines are different. So there's a box of photos that says 72 on it. And the medical equipment in the hospital is kind of dated, but only if you inspect it really closely. And but then after the reveal, suddenly everybody's wearing polyester and smoking in exactly. hospitals yeah. and so proving that it's the 70s. And it's like, right, I know. It's like a total period drama. Um, but And obviously the characters are really interesting, I think, um, in ways that are unusual for, for a network show. I just think that this is, I mean, it's a really good sort of textured show if you pay close attention to it. Um, all right. Well, I'm just going to I'm going to leap right to my opinion, which is that everything you just said would make me hate it. And I freaking <laughs> love this show. What? Julia Steve? Turner, what has happened to me? <laughs> That's like the single most surprising opinion you've had in eight years. I'm so happy Say more. <laughs> um, I've been body snatched. Um, no, no. Him uh, watching The Bachelor and The Bachelorette religiously is the most surprising. OK, fine. Second, second most surprising stevelation. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I? What happened to me? Why did you cost me on the head and rendered me senseless? I couldn't laugh harder. I loved it. It was so heartwarming. It was. But when you say you couldn't laugh harder, you mean you mean that you were laughing when you were meant to laugh, or did you watch it in a second revolution? I laughed. I cried. The. I laughed, I cried, Dennis Stevens. The poignancy of it (laughs) just affected me through and through. Um, Take me out of here in a freaking straitjacket. Switch my meds. I like this is us. How many many episodes did you watch, Steve? Trump has broken me down. (laughs) Uh, I watched uh, the first two and I I thought, why? It's, uh, you cannot, okay, first of all, let's let's focus here, people. Julia Turner, uh, why don't I start with you? Whatever else is true about this show, it is very well crafted by someone who knows what he is doing. The writing is extremely sharp. It may not be your jam, but uh, the um, deftness with which it was uh, made is undeniable. Am I at least correct in asserting that? Yeah. I mean, I will confess that I started watching this show with idle curiosity, expecting not to like it, and then suddenly fell into a wormhole and had watched six of them in a row (laughs) while lying in my bed. On Friday and like slacking Laura, who was at a wedding and just sure basically was. being like, I'm yeah. crying. I actually yeah. wanted to like live slack more things to you. And I was like, I shouldn't no, bother I, I you Laura. <laughs> I loved all. All I want to do is talk about This Is Us at all moments, okay, even well, on the dance floor. I'm going to keep that uh, in my pocket for future viewings. <laughs> but I watched six episodes and um, don't really respect myself for how much I enjoyed it. But maybe I just should. Uh I would say that the most sophisticated thing about the show is the plotting. It has like Agatha Christie level, like excellent soap opera plotting. Like there are cliffhangers and twists at the end of nearly every episode. Uh, There are they are just piling on the plot. I mean, they are going through plot. You know, one thing that's striking about these family dramas is that in a procedural or a superhero show where there's a bad guy to fight, the personal drama plot is like the B story or the C story and you don't go through it as fast. But this thing 
you know, you see things in episode two that become big reveals in episode five. And it's like, oh, my God, what's going to happen by oh, episode 20? Like that's they, genius. They're, they are going through it. So I, it's unclear how Baroque the conflicts will get by the end of its run. But for the moment, it's very satisfying to watch. Um, the characters are all too good to be true. Like the conflicts don't really come from anybody being an asshole. All the conflicts come from people just trying to love each other right, but they just can't <laughs> always communicate. So like all the marriages are like, you know, people are just really trying. They like really want to do right by each other, but life is hard, guys. Yeah. And you're just like, it is hard. And oh my God, I hate so myself. Much. I hate myself so much right now. That's exactly this right. It's this is really like a support group. Hello, my name is Julia Turner, and I like this is us. Dana, Dana I mean, us. Like, okay, I'm going to stake out the sane position. I'm not even doing it to oppose you guys, but my honest reaction to this show was that it was sort of, it was sort of the crash babble style, you know, sprawling story. <laughs> Grand you know, brings many threads together, right, with all the sentimentality and the kind of yeah. faux concern with social issues that that entails, or maybe not faux, but uh, let's say superficial engagement with social issues that that entails. Um, that it was, as you say, Steve, well-crafted and well-put-together, and the twists at the end were true twists. You know, they weren't just uh, throwing in a sort of, you know, random wrench into the works. They were a new piece of knowledge that somehow shifted your understanding of all of these characters, and that's cool. So, yeah, there's somebody who's putting together a well-crafted machine, but what that well-crafted machine is trying to do, I wouldn't quite say it's reprehensible, <laughs> but but it's it's... <laughs> Encouraging viewers to be comfortably dumb, I would you say. You are cold, Stevens. <laughs> that was an ice cold comfortably rating. Comfortably dumb. Oh, my Lord. So, I talk about, so why do you yeah. guys feel the shame if you don't agree with me that there's some comfortable dumbness? Why do you yeah. shudder in shame at your own love for it? That's a good question. I think that is a very good question. Because we know you're right. <laughs> well, I here's what I'd say. So Vulture had this piece that I thought was very interesting and, and wrongheaded but worth reading about the, I believe it was called the safe progressivism of This Is Us. And that's undeniable. But, I mean, and you could say that it's cynical that NBC knew they would succeed with a show that kind of feels like a little bubble with all the delusions and blinkeredness that that entails away from the kind of real productive progressivism that makes liberals confront their own privilege and unseen biases and things like that. It turns phony progressivism into a kind of lullaby for liberal viewers who want to watch something that has a slight tang but is fundamentally mild and gentle and safe. But I don't know. I feel like it was sort of subtler than people give it credit for on a lot of these issues. So I don't know if if any of you saw the episode where – so to avoid giving a full spo- spoiler, I will say that one character finds out that another character is gay. And there is this moment when he makes this face. And it's a cl- character is very close to him. He makes a face. It's not a judgmental face. It's just a, huh. And you see him – kind of integrating this new information. It's this great tiny moment of this well-intentioned, open-hearted liberal person getting his unconscious biases very faintly pinged. And it kind of makes a joke about how, you know, he's not weirded out per se, but he's he's sort of integrating this. I just I think that the, the show is is more self-aware than anyone sort of gives it credit for. And it's it knows that it gets away with its sort of toothlessness by being so earnest and sweet, but it also mm-hmm. has these decent you know, truly good characters yeah. who are exactly the kinds of deluded, well-intentioned progressive this show may be targeting. And it's kind of a right. funny trick. I, I, I do think I give the show credit for addressing um, emotional terrain that goes unaddressed elsewhere 
you know, like the the notion of two adult brothers who really aren't that close and were never close growing up. And like, what do you do with that relationship? Can you really start a new relationship with an adult sibling that you weren't close to as a child? Like, that's a real question that some people have in their lives and you don't often see treated. Um, you know, you're more likely to get sibling relationships like uh, Jamie and Cersei or whatever. So, right. you know, the show spends like it's a major plot of one whole episode, like these brothers, their relationship, what what can happen between them? Can it grow? Uh, which is like very small bore and, and emotionally interesting terrain. And the show is not glib about that. Um, similarly, the overweight character, Kate, you spend a lot of time like with her actual emotional struggles around eating and weight loss and temptation and willpower and just the the emotional headspace of yep. dieting uh, and exercise. And that's a headspace where like a lot of people spend their time and and it's treated with um, seriousness and respect in a way that feels actually quite fresh and not super exploitative, I think, of her. I would just jump in and nuance that, though, Julia, with this the, the remark that Kate, who's played by Chrissy Metz, the overweight twin, female twin, is to a greater degree than I would like to see defined by her fatness and her relationship to her fatness and her self-consciousness about it. And she, she meets someone at her Weight Watchers group and they start to date. And it just seems, at least based on the first two episodes, that we're not going to get to know very much about Kate except for her lifelong trauma about her weight. And I just wonder how viewers of the show who are large people, fat people, would feel about that and whether they would feel like she's she's being boxed. She gets more interesting as the show progresses. Yeah. Like she gets a job, she and her twin start to think through their tangled relationship and how codependent they are and whether that's healthy. I mean, she, she I, I had that concern too, especially from the initial episode, which is just like all like her like staring at pieces of cake and sighing. And it's just like, come on, like this does not seem like a reasonable um, portrayal of an overweight person's emotional landscape and terrain. But, um, I, and I'm sure there is still plenty to object to, but I think she she gets a much broader range of interests and concerns. Well, I mean, it's, it's a funny performance, and I like the character. I just I just want to see more sides to her. Also, I would say she's obsessed with losing weight, which is a drum that's beaten relentlessly. But within that, her struggles with insecurity are conveyed in deeply humane and nuanced ways. So she's funny and tough and calm, but she's also insecure about her lovability and her worth. And that is a more textured emotional arc than just staring longingly at a piece of cake. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I'll tell you one thing. I, I Well, two things that I really liked about the show, in all seriousness. The first was I thought the sharpness of the writing over the Manny plot. Uh, so the successful, very hunky brother stars in a inane sitcom that he essentially hates being in but is making him rich and famous called Manny. And one of its gimmicks is that he walks around with his shirt off uh, a lot of the time. And I thought all of that actually, I mean, I, I dislike Hollywood cannibalizing itself over and over and over again, which it's done way too much of over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, I thought this was very funny. It was handled super, super cleverly. The bit with Alan Thicke, all of that I just thought was genuinely funny. Very good writing. I would have watched that under any conditions. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, the, 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 the trend of my own life and of v- the viewing habits of people, you know, like me is so in the opposite direction of network TV um, that you forget what one of the purposes of network TV was back in its kind of golden age of three channels, um, which in a way was to start at the center of American consciousness 
with um, extremely sentimental but widely shared values, um, and then expand out from that core um, to things that were possibly more nuanced or shades of gray or troubling. Um, and of course, cable premium cable is exactly the opposite, right? It starts on the very, very outermost fringe. Um, the first, you know, the net old golden age of network flattered our American goodness. You know, you could argue that 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 gourmet, you know, premium streaming TV flatters our sense of badness in ways that are preposterous. Um, and it was something comforting in this day and age to start with something that that began with that core, um, you know, which is which has become tenuous and is actually a far more daring place and an interesting place to start than with, you know, drug dealers and and and, you know, on and on and on villainy, you know, Walter White style villainy that moment kind of has come and gone um, and to build out from it. And I just think I was grateful for that. Right. I mean, I I agree that this the sort of progressivism of the show is phony. It's safe and all those things. But it's also kind of the conceit of the show. It what it's what it, this sort of rosy liberalism, this fake world in which decent people are just trying to muddle through and they don't and they just sort of I mean, and, and everything works out in the end. That's what makes this show such escapist TV. This is just such a good ensemble show, which is coincidental because Sterling K. Brown is in it, and he was also in People vs. O.J. Um, and it's just this web of relationships that are all so dense and persuasive, and then also this balance where the sort of the this dynamic where the emotional balance never tilts too far in any one direction. So everyone sort of the narrative weight is nicely distributed among all these different stories. And it just it makes such a satisfying whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Although Sterling Brown is the standout. Oh, he's his, incredible. His performance and his character, I think, is the real part of the show. Yeah, completely agree. Okay, it's This Is Us. It's on NBC. It is network TV that we, by and large, liked, except for that incorrigible, um, self-serving cynic, Dana Stevens. <laughs> um, Laura Bennett's the culture editor of Slate.com. Laura, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It is always a real pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, the great, and I mean great, television comedian Mary Tyler Moore has died. She first became widely known playing the wife of Dick Van Dyke on The Dick Van Dyke Show in the 60s, but her enduring contribution to American culture is her eponymous and still beloved television show, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, about a 30-year-old single woman making a life as a newswoman in Minneapolis. It is uh, a double icon, the rare double icon. I think it's iconic um, as television comedy. It is iconic as feminism of a certain low-key but very definite variety. It is also just simply, I think, just without question, one of the funniest and most beloved television shows of all time. I grew up with it. It was mother's milk to me. Let's listen to a clip. Look, miss, would you try answering the questions as I ask them? Yes, Mr. Grant, I will, but it does seem that you've been asking a lot of very personal questions that don't have a thing to do with my qualifications for this job. You know what? You got spunk. Well, yes. I hate spunk. (laughs) Tell you what. I'll try you out for a couple of weeks, see if it works out. Oh. If I don't like you, I'll fire you. Right, right. You don't like me, I'll fire you. <laughs> that certainly seems fair. All right, well, um, Julia, I'm going to start with you. You are um, the child of a newswoman, and you are a newswoman yourself. Um, surely this character meant uh, quite a lot to you. Yeah, I mean, the Mary Tyler Moore show, I think, for people of my generation, we know it 
from reruns on Nick at Night. It was part of the Nick at Night retro programming block in the early 90s. Uh, and I watched it a bunch and loved it. And also watched Murphy Brown a bunch at that time. So like feminist fictional newswomen are like a key uh, key parts of my televisual psychic landscape. But um, I, I, I was watching episodes again this weekend trying to understand what made me respond to the show so strongly as a teen. Uh, and I think the show uh, offered a model of feminism that felt very appealing. I mean, feminism in general was very appealing to me. My mother was a avowed feminist and spoke a lot about her concerns in the workplace. And, you know, it's not like that was an alien concept that was introduced to me by Mary Tyler Moore. I was uh, raised in fertile soil for such ideas and such role models. But uh, she just made it seem so fun and natural and easy and obvious to just be independent minded and smart and to have spine and to care about the world and other people and have a point of view and a perspective and have an independent life and not assume that it would be better to uh, marry a bozo than be single and that pursuing your own ideas was obvious. Like she made it seem like, duh, duh, you're mm-hmm. a feminist. Like, duh, <laughs> this is just the obvious way one goes about one's life. And you can be as charming as Mary Tyler Moore and, and wear as many primary 70s color geometrically striped outfits. And it just seemed great. I, 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 I don't even watching it again. I had trouble putting my finger on the exact appeal. But I think um, she just made it look obvious and fun to be mm. what I strived to be as a kid. Yeah. So role modeling aside, Dana, um, it's just one of the great television shows of all time. What, uh, what, did, what did it mean to you? Well, like you, I, I grew up in the era when it was first on the air. I, I think I was four when it debuted in 1970. And uh, and I have I mean, there's there's really not a memory of a Saturday night in that part of my childhood that doesn't include ritual Mary Tyler Moore watching back to back with Bob Newhart and the rest of that great programming block on Saturday nights with my family. So she was a very, very early image of, yeah, what it was to be an adult. And I wrote about this a little bit in a blog post I wrote after she died for Slate. But I think... Julia kind of kind of captured it with what she was saying about the the spontaneity and the kind of the, the ease with which she seemed to inhabit this role that was, in fact, unbeknownst to children like us at the time, was this socially new and radical role. And uh, and in fact, in the early stages of planning of the Mary Tyler Moore show, she was supposed to be a divorcee who was starting life again. But they decided that was too scandalous. They couldn't have a main mm-hmm. female character who had been divorced. And so they made her having broke up with a fiance instead, something that was very rarely referenced after the first episode of the show. But that was Mary's background. I was watching some episodes of it with one of my best friends who was who came for the women's march with me. I think we talked about this in Plus last week, Steve. And she stayed she stayed for the week after. So when Mary died, she was around. And she and I have an old history of of loving Mary and Rhoda and watching them together and have this kind of running joke that I'm Mary and she's Rhoda. And so we watched a few episodes of both Mary and the spin-off Rhoda with Valerie Harper, which is also a great show. And uh, yeah. and something that I was really noticing from episode one of the Mary Tyler Moore show is that it takes place in a women's world. You know, it really does. I mean, she works with all men. And so there in the workplace, there are sometimes moments, for example, where she has to ask Mr. Grant for a raise because the, her predecessor, a male, was making more money than her. But 
in the domestic spaces, when you're in Mary's wonderful apartment with the wooden M on the wall, it's it's Phyllis knocking on the door, her landlady to come in and chat about her problems, and it's Rhoda coming from downstairs to bitch about something, and it really is this kind of coffee clutch of women, you know. So in that mm-hmm. way, I think as as a child, it seemed really utopic to me too. It was sort of yes, you go to this cool office workplace and wear the neat geometrically striped pantsuits, and then you go home and your best friend lives right upstairs, and you get to hash out all your problems with her, you know. So it was this this vision of single young womanhood that was so appealing to a child that it would never have occurred to me that, you know, she should have been looking for a man yes. or that this was a way station on the way to getting her MRS degree or something like that. Um, yeah. It's also, yeah. I had forgotten that she doesn't get married at the end of the run. Like even Liz mm-hmm. Lemon got fucking married and yeah, had a baby sure. at the end yep. of the run, right? It, like, the show is just not oriented that way, not at all. And in fact, it got less and less so. I think in the early seasons, yeah. there would be more things about it, her dating and could she find the right guy. But pretty soon, the relationships in the office with Ted and Murray yes. and, and, and Sue Ann Nivens and all the hilarious characters of WJMTV became <laughs> so much much richer than you know just watching her, her boyfriend woes. The, it began yeah, to focus exactly. more on that. I mean, I, re-watching it, I was really curious about a couple things one how revolutionary does it really feel um retrospectively from this point of view of this day and age and secondly um does it hold up as a as a comedy and amazingly both things are are really evident um from the pilot episode i mean in the first two minutes of the pilot episode you have a scene featuring a single career woman and a clearly jewish character i think these were highly unusual types to be promoted on i mean it was only several years after she had been in the very black and white kind of 50s holdover dick van dyke show uh she's in a new universe uh in the mary tyler moore show and it was uh very open about that from the beginning um then um uh simply as an office comedy i think it's got to be the first one right that television station gave birth to I mean, it is not an exaggeration to say hundreds of shows that were built on exactly that template. I don't really know which one, what sitcom preceded it as a workplace drama filled with social types at the center of which is this character we heavily identify with as kind of the normal one at the center of, so there's Murray, the office wit, Sue Ann, the sex pot underminer, Ted Baxter, the vainglorious newscaster. And then, of course, you know, deathlessly, there's uh, Lou Grant, the whiskey soak, you know, sort of cynical softy. Who and can I Mary... add? In the first episode, Lou Grant shows up drunk at Mary's door after her very first day of work. <laughs> the most inappropriate call the HR office thing that could possibly happen in, in today's work universe. And it's kind of treated as just a funny moment on the show. There's my drunk boss wandering <laughs> yeah. over to my apartment at night. Yeah, that is true. Um, and and then the other thing, I, a couple of points I want want to make quickly is that is that yes, she's spunky in the famous words of Lou Grant. She's um, uh, you know cheerful, upbeat. But Mary Tyler Moore brought a completely new dimension to that character, and in a way to television, which is that underneath there's real melancholy and confusion, which was very much a part of Mary Tyler Moore's repertoire as an actress. Um, It came out in Ordinary People, that tragic, um, disappointed, slightly rigid side to her personality um, uh, really became manifest in that performance, which is incredible. Um, um, But it's there in Mary Richards, too. I mean, she's not simply a normal, perky, happy, well-adjusted person at the center of the show. There's an element of... of, um, I, melancholy really is the word. Um, and then the second thing is just how funny the best episodes are. The really famous standout episode that like the kind of, if you're going to watch one, watch this one is the Chuckles the Clown episode, which I rewatched. I was laughing hysterically. As comedy, it completely holds up. We should say that the show was the 
brainchild in no small part of James L. Brooks, who went on to have a huge career in both uh, feature films and TV in terms of endearment, The Simpsons, um, the, you know, the early work of Wes Anderson. I mean, so many things bear the fingerprints of James L. Brooks and the show was uh, was the original one, as far as I know. Can I say a couple words about the melancholy that you just pointed out? I'd love to hear them, yeah. I just, I hadn't realized until reading obituaries of Mary Tyler Moore what a hard life she had and what a difficult past she was channeling in her work because, as you say, she is this you know, delightful light comedian. She also did do roles like Ordinary People where she could pull off, you know, much more serious acting roles. But you think of her as this sunshiny creature who can turn the world on with her smile. And in fact, both her parents were alcoholics. And for that reason, she lived from early childhood with an aunt instead of with them. And she also went through a period of alcoholism, I think, beginning early in her career at the Dick Van Dyke show period. She had one child who died of an accidental gunshot wound at age 24 or something. I mean, her life was really studded with these awful, awful stories. And so that gave a, a different dimension to uh, to thinking about that that sparkle that she had. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly where you see the melancholy. I'd love to see some of the episodes that you see the melancholy Mary Richards in the Mary Tyler Moore show. But something that you often see in her character that I really identify with. I mean, she was a feminist in the sense that she was tra- trailblazing in the workplace. But she was also she had real boundary issues. There were many, many episodes mm. of Mary Tyler Moore that that revolved around her not being able to say no to someone, getting in over her head by being too nice, right? Having to learn to sort of um, draw boundaries with people. There's one where Phyllis becomes her assistant, her office assistant, because Lou Grant says, you have so much extra work, I'll let you hire an assistant. And uh, out of niceness and because her landlady Phyllis is bored and her, her jobless life, she lets her become her assistant. And Phyllis, of course, is a horrible assistant and eventually has to be fired. But there seemed to be a lot of plots that had to do with that Mary is too nice. And what is she going to do about toughening up to get through this problem in the workplace? And I think, you know, as much in the 70s as now, that's something that probably women in the workplace struggle with. So I appreciate that that was also a part of the show. And it was a very funny part of the show. She could have used some coaching lessons from Isabelle Huppert. Oh, yeah. She had none of that toughness. I mean, just think of that Mary stammering smile. You know, she had a certain kind of fake smile that she would put on when she was saying yes to something that she really knew she shouldn't be saying yes to. And that was something that returned again and again in the show. Mm. All right. I will say without equivocation that in the history of the sitcom form, a major American popular art form, I rate the Mary Tyler Moore show as number one. Whoa. We had this conversation before, I think, all-time TV rankings, and Mary was way, way up there for me. I mean, it's the whole package, you know? It's the the style, the ensemble acting, the incredible theme song. Just when that little twinkly sound before mm-hmm. the theme song starts, you just know you're in for a yeah. half hour of joy. It's Pavlovian. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, all right. Well, Mary Tyler Moore, a, a woman who gave an extraordinary, uh, t- took of an extraordinary gift and gave it um, beautifully to all of us. Uh, highly recommended to people who haven't seen the show. Seek it out. It's on Hulu, Amazon. Pay a buck. Watch some of these episodes. They're fantastic. Piece of television history. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? That's a good one, Steve. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice little extra wiggle at the end of the last A. Uh, so I was going to do a serious endorsement this week because I've read so many 
very well-written and very chilling analyses of what's happening, what nightmarish things are happening in the political sphere this week. But instead, I'm going to go with a goofy escapist endorsement for this time and uh, and maybe get serious next time. So there's these um, creators of song parodies that my daughter has gotten me into on YouTube. They have their own YouTube channel. Their names are Dustin and Genevieve. I think they're a couple, either a married couple or, or at least engaged to be married. And uh, they make these very amateurish and yet very hilarious parody videos of popular songs where they rewrite the lyrics and kind of act them out. It all seems to be filmed with an iPhone around their house. And it's extremely DIY, but extremely endearing and clever. And uh, the particular one I recommend that you start with on your Dustin and Genevieve journey is their parody of Circle of Life, the song from The Lion King, Uh which they turn into a song about social media and the ills of social media. (laughs) And I just want to play for you the very, very beginning of the song so that you can catch some of the charm of the Dustin and Genevieve magic. Time to check my social media to see who loves me online. Hashtag bless life. Time to post a pick with an inspirational quote. It's deep and we'll get so this this song goes on and on with Dustin and Genevieve posing in various, you know, beach beautiful beach like locations and uh, and scrolling dramatically through their Instagram feeds. And uh, it's become sort of an anthem around my house. So when my daughter thinks we're spending too much time online and she sees me checking something on my phone, she'll start bellowing, time to check my social media. (laughs) Anyway, uh, it's one of those things that grows on you the more you watch it. And then you start watching their Adele parodies and their various other parodies. And they have a comedic album, which I haven't bought yet. But uh, just the idea of this goofy couple of total non-professional performers having fun writing fake lyrics for songs and acting them out is a very thing. It's sort of the best of YouTube. And so uh, I recommend Dustin and Genevieve's YouTube channel. We'll put a link on the show page. I will check that out. That does sound appealing. That's hilarious. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I would like to recommend a book. The book is When in French by Lauren Collins, who's a wonderful writer for The New Yorker. It's a memoir. Uh, They meet in London speaking English, uh, but then move to Geneva and in an effort to have something to do in that city, which she doesn't like very much. And uh, to understand her husband better, she sets out to learn French, which is his native tongue. It's just a great, astute piece of writing. It's full of interesting little observations about the differences and disjunctures between cultures that you can discover when you get really immersed in another language and how those can affect your relationships and what it means to really love someone in a second language and and the conflicts and opportunities that arise there. And it it's worth reading right now, I think, as a document of an attempt at cultural understanding. Uh, I feel like we are living in a moment of great uh, cultural conflict and It's a really humane and sympathetic and wonderfully turned book. So the book is When in French by Lauren Collins. It's a wonderful memoir for anyone you know who uh, speaks French or aspires to speak French or is just interested in language and learning languages and how they work. Mm. Um, She's wonderful, Lauren Collins. I am very psyched to read that book. Um, All right. Well, I endorse some double endorsement very quickly. First, I um, love the Mary Tyler Moore theme song. I loved it even more when Husker Du, the great Minneapolis punk rock band, covered it. It was a B-side, one of their singles. Yes, I linked to that cover in my little write-up of of Mary. It's one of the best song covers ever because it it completely preserves the spirit of the original song while finding something new in it. 
Yeah. Um, and then on a slightly less light note, um, I don't know if I've ever quite endorsed this. I might have mentioned it in another endorsement, but I want to return to it, which is an essay by the um, Czech playwright. Uh, and of course, it became the president of, uh, of uh, post-communist uh, Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel. Uh, the essay is called The Power of the Powerless. It should be considered a modern classic. It's essentially Havel was uh, either in prison or about to be in prison or in and out of prison when he wrote it um, in the mid-70s. Uh, and it was trying to get at the nature of a per- somewhat peripheral communist regime. So in other words, it wasn't he wasn't living in Moscow. He wasn't at the center of the Soviet empire. He was living in a society that was dealing with the Soviet boot in a slightly indirect way or somewhat indirect way. I mean, in many respects, quite a direct way. In 68, Soviet tanks had gone into Prague and were ready to go again. Nonetheless, he felt that novel ideological terms were necessary in order to understand the reality that he was living under. And so he coined the phrase post-totalitarian society, post-democratic society. And he was the, the, what drew me to the essay initially was it seemed to me someone like Havel was attempting to find non-ideological ways to understand our yearning for human freedom as it's squeezed uh, by ideological uh uh, categories and by power. Um, it's available online in PDF form. I I highly recommend reading it at one's uh, uh, earliest convenience. It is a modern classic and it is sadly um, utterly relevant to our present moment. All right, Dana, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Julia, thanks. That was wonderful. Thanks, guys. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Verilyn Williams. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Daniel Schrader, who we should say has his first uh, author byline on Slate this week with a post Ooh. about throwing shade on TV land. So check that out. Oh, fantastic. Congrats to uh, Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of like-minded and unlike-minded shows, a wonderful diversity of shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Culture. Fest. Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you soon.